Father, we've come now to behold a wondrous mystery. We've come to see again in your word the demonstration of your love in Christ Jesus, your son. And we come in great dependence upon your spirit to illumine our minds and to give us understanding and to make the word alive in our hearts. We can't do anything apart from you unless we abide in Christ and he in us and your word in us, unless we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we we can do nothing. In our best days, we don't want to do anything apart from you. So help us now by your word to think about the church, to think about ourselves as the church, and to, Lord, obey all that you command. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're popping in with us, visiting for the first time, you're joining us in the middle of a series that we call Being the Church. Normally, what I'll do is pick a book of the Bible, and uh, we will section by section uh, preach through that book of the Bible, trying to give you the meaning of a, a section of Scripture and apply it to our lives. This is what we call expositional preaching. But maybe about 25 to 30% of the time, we do what's called a topical series, where we take a topic and we kind of search the Bible for the Bible's teaching on that topic. And that's a good thing to do from time to time because there are some subjects that you don't get to in a coherent way if you're just going through the Bible verse by verse. And one of those subjects is the the subject of the church. And so we're doing this series called Being the Church because that's what we want to do. We want to not play church, but be the church. And we want to do that according to God's Word. Now, this is the fifth of the sermons in this series, so let me give you a a quick overview of where we've been so far. We started in the first sermon thinking about the fact that the church is the people of God, and we went from Genesis to Revelation looking at this idea that what it means to be the people of God is that we are God's chosen people in God's chosen place on God's chosen program. That God has called us out of the world and he has taken us to the place in his presence, in his kingdom, that he wishes us to be. And he's given us a program or a mission along the way. Well, then we thought about the fact that the church is not only God's chosen people, but the church is also the body of Christ. That we are this people, each of us a body part, each of us a member of Jesus' own body that we are joined together spiritually with him and with each other, and that the life that we wish to live as a church is a shared life, uh, a shared life uh, mediating the grace of God to each other. Well, we thought not only about the body, but in the third sermon, we thought about the head, that Jesus Christ is the sole and sufficient head of the body of Christ. That, That means he is joined together with us, as I said a moment ago, but it also means that he is the one who rules or commands the body in the same way that your head and your brain function to make your body move and do certain things. That's what Jesus does in the church. And, and, and he is the, the source of our life. He, he fills us. We, we thought about the marvelous truth that, that the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ bodily and Jesus dwells in us. And that we live in his power. Well, in all those first three sermons, we're thinking about the church theologically and we're thinking about the church vertically, our relationship to our God. 
And last week, we began to think about the church horizontally, our relationship to each other. And we thought a little bit about leadership in the church. Thought about the two offices that uh, continue in today's church, the office of pastor and the office of deacon. We surveyed those offices through the book of Acts primarily to see sort of where they came from and when they got their start. And to think a little bit about how pastors and deacons lead and serve the church. Well, today we want to come to what some people might call a third office. That's membership. That's you guys. And we want to think about this question of how the membership responds to and participates in the leadership of the church. Now, the word for that theologically is termed congregationalism. Congregationalism. Now, show of hands, how many of you have ever been in a congregationally governed church? Okay, excellent. That's a few of y'all. How many of you all don't even know what that means? That's what I'm talking about. I love the honest folks, right? All right. And so I assume that most of the others of you then have come from some other form uh, of church government. And and what I want to do is explain this notion of congregationalism and apply it for us uh, that we might have some understanding of how God calls us to live together as a body, as a congregation. So if you're taking notes, I want to ask and answer four questions. Number one, what is congregationalism? What is congregationalism? Number two, what is congregationalism not? What is congregationalism not? Number three, where do we see congregationalism in the Bible? It doesn't matter what it is if it ain't in the book. Where do we see congregationalism in the Bible? And number four, how does congregationalism work in practice? How does it work in practice? So those first two questions, I'm going to give you a little bit of some definitional work and a little bit of history, church history, uh, on these questions. And then we'll come to the Bible on that third question, spend the bulk of our time uh, thinking about where it is in the Bible and how it works. Y'all with me? All right, let's pray. Father, again, we pray that you'd help us to hear your word, give us clear understanding of this vital truth so that we might enjoy the fruits of unity and peace and joy and understanding and cooperation in the church. Strengthen us, we pray, in this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is congregationalism? Well, one definition might go like this. Congregationalism is a system of church government where pastors lead and congregations as a whole make final decisions in three areas. Membership, the calling of leadership, and the protecting of the gospel. So congregationalism is a system of government. So we're talking about how the church runs itself. It's a system of government where pastors lead, that's the role that we were talking about last week, pastors lead and congregations as a whole make final decisions in three areas. Membership, including discipline, the calling of leaders, and, number three, the protecting of doctrine or the gospel. You may hear this summarized, if you read stuff on this, you want to geek out on on church polity, you you may hear this described as elder-led congregational rule. Elders lead, but there are matters in which the congregation rules or makes final decisions. Another word for what we're talking about is polity. It's a fancy word that just means government. 
And in the history of the church, there have been different forms of government. So Presbyterians have what are called presbyteries. Those are groups of elders from local churches who sort of um, represent their local churches in a kind of committee of elders called a, a presbytery. And that presbytery oversees the local churches in a given region. And not only that, but members from presbyteries also become parts of the general assembly, which oversee the entire, entire denomination. So you might think of it as a, a system of interlocking courts that, that sort of go up in, in authority. Now, what the general assembly in a presbytery decides actually has um, uh, impact and, and governs what happens all the way down the system to the local level, to the local churches. So presbyters in the synod or in the general assembly are the ones who hold authority uh, in this form of government. Well, there are also other forms, another form primarily. Uh, You'll see this in Anglican churches, Roman Catholic, and some Lutheran churches that have a system of bishops. So you'll have local congregations that will have ministers or pastors But over those pastors in that region are individual bishops. And over those bishops for a region are higher bishops until you get to the archbishop who who kind of sits as um, monarchical sort of king over over the whole church in that way. So in Roman Catholicism, you've got the Pope. In Anglicanism, you've got the Archbishop of Canterbury. And so in this episcopal form of government, Episcopal, another word that just means bishop. In this Episcopal form of government, it's the bishops who hold authority and the bishops who govern the church in that way. Now, I trust you can see the difference with congregationalism. Congregationalism does not put all the decision-making authority and responsibility in the hands of higher committees or in the hands of individual bishops. Congregationalism puts decision-making authority in the hands of the congregation as a whole. So it is, in that sense, a more populist form of government. Now, Congregationalism gets its start in the Protestant Reformation of the 1600s. One of the chief theologians of congregational churches is John Calvin over in Geneva, Switzerland. But in the English Reformation, as the Reformation continues there, uh, Anglicanism is a state church. And what you'll notice when you study church history and this notion of government is that often the form of government in a particular country mimics the form of government in the civil authority of that country. So in Anglicanism, you get monarchical bishops that looks a whole lot like the monarchy of England. In Presbyterianism, in Scotland, you had parliaments and courts, and so the form of government looks a whole lot like Scotland's uh, uh, sort of parliament system. But Baptists are a rowdy bunch. And in England, as the Reformation uh, continues and as, as the Reformers are coming back to the Word of God over and over again to apply it to the life of the church, it was Baptists who said, no, actually, there's a distinction between membership in the state and membership in the church. And, and it seems to us that in the scriptures, the, the way the church is governed is not by a monarchical bishop or even by a synod, but it seems to us that there are in the, in the scripture instances where it's the congregation itself that rules. As you know, your church history, Baptists were persecuted in England, came to the New World along with other congregationalists. 
In Massachusetts, which became officially the, the sort of state religion of Massachusetts, was, was congregationalism, uh, congregational churches. Uh, in Rhode Island, uh, the official sort of denomination or religion there, or Baptist, was a, was a Baptist colony. Well, in 1648, the congregational churches uh, in Massachusetts had a, a meeting together and they wrote what's called the, the Cambridge Platform. And the Cambridge Platform is what, for the first time in the New World, outlined this congregational polity that we're talking about. Ten years later, back in England, the Baptists in England, 1658, wrote the Savoy Declaration. The Savoy Declaration was based in part on the Cambridge platform, but did essentially the same thing. It is sort of outlined for the first time on that side of the Atlantic, uh, congregational polity, congregational rule. And so what we're talking about here is 400 years old. Comes right up out of the Reformation. It's not something new or some weird idea that Pastor T came up with. It's it's what Bible-believing Christians have have arrived at as they have searched the Scripture. Now, let me say one quick word about the the Cambridge platform, because what it taught was that church government is actually a mixed government. That there are elements of monarchy, and we've already heard it. Jesus Christ is the head and the king. And there's, there are elements of aristocracy. We've already heard that too, that there are offices in the church, particularly here, pastors. But there's also an element of democracy. And that's where the congregation acts and rules. So if I was subtitling this message, I would, I would call it congregationalism, the artful dance. There's an artful dance that goes on between those three elements of rule. We, we obey Christ's kingship and lordship over the whole church by obeying his word. Christ in his word has given us leaders to lead us, but also in the scripture we see these elements of the congregation acting to decide in certain matters. I know some of you like to go out salsa dancing. I love salsa dancing. I won't illustrate for you. It's been a while. But there's a choreography that happens there. The man leads the dance, and through a a, a system of cues and gestures that he makes with his hands or otherwise, the the woman picks up the choreography and and follows the choreography. And the the whole point of the dance is is not the man's leadership, but it's to to demonstrate the beauty and the flair of the woman. So it is with the church. This is not the robot. you know, following particular steps, <laughs> you know. It's a dance. It's a choreography. Christ is the DJ. <laughs> the, the pa- you know, that's a bumping soundtrack. The, the, the pastors lead. But the point is to show off the beauty and the splendor and the majesty of the church as a whole. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3 when he says that the church uh, demonstrates the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in the universe. So what we're talking about here is a way of beautifying God's people in front of the universe. So let me give you the definition again and we'll move to our second question. Congregationalism is a form of church government where pastors lead according to the word of God And congregations as a whole have final decision-making authority in three areas, membership, the calling of leaders, and the protection of the gospel and gospel doctrine. So let me give you a couple words as to what congregationalism is not. 
because there are at least three things that get sort of confused with congregationalism. And when that happens, these confusions actually wind up hurting the unity, the peace, and the joy of the church. Here's the first one. Congregationalism is not one man, one vote democracy. It is not one man, one vote democracy. In other words, congregationalism is not about individualism. Remember, we are all part of one body. So the aim of church government is to reflect the spiritual union that we have with Jesus as our head and with one another as parts of his body. In one person, one vote style democracy, the only thing you're representing are your individual preferences and ideals. You don't necessarily consider the others. You don't try to reflect necessarily unity with your vote. You're just reflecting your individual perspective. But if we do that, then each of the 150 members of this church will on some level begin to try and make the church in their own image and in their own likeness. Because we'll be pursuing our preferences rather than pursuing the unity of the body of Christ, which congregationalism aims at. So the best approach to congregationalism, um, sort, of to, sort of together as a body, requires us to die to ourselves, as Jesus taught, and to try to reflect the will of God for the entire body. It says, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, that we are one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We're meant to reflect that in how we govern ourselves. Number two, congregationalism is not a committee of the whole. What do I mean here? Well, if we were to turn the church into a committee of the whole, that would mean sending all the affairs of the church and all the business of the church to the whole church for deliberation and debate and immersion in the details and then arriving at a, at a decision. So when you have a committee of the whole, if our Congress were to call a committee of the whole, that means it would suspend all of its normal committee structure. And instead of a thing being worked out in committee and then presented to the whole, that thing would come to the whole for debate at every level, every detail. You can see why this breaks down. It blurs the lines between the membership as a whole and the leadership in their role. It doesn't say that all matters, congregationalism, doesn't say that all matters should be worked out by the entire church without regard to these differences in roles. When the, when the church tries to rule as a committee of the whole, it, it's going to break down under the weight of all of that detail and all of that sort of individual level of development and interest. So let me give you a couple principles here. The more complex the decision and the less clear the answer is in the Bible, the more you need leadership to lead the congregation and the congregation to step back to wait to make the decision. So the less clear it is in the Bible and the more messy it is, the more you need leadership as a committee to work through the issue and for the congregation to sort of stand back praying for the leadership until it takes its decision-making role another principle. 
the more the decision involves the intimate details of a member's life, the less involved in the details you want the congregation to be. So congregationalism is not a license for everyone in the body to know everything about a a person's life. Congregationalism doesn't allow us to violate the rules of privacy or the responsibility to protect one another's reputation. So we don't want to turn the committee of the whole into a gossip factory. It's a simple way to put that. The committee that is called to be involved in the personal details of an individual member's life is the pastorate. That's why you have pastors, is to get involved in the messiness of each other's life. And, and the folks that you have said are the ones who are spiritually qualified to do that personal work are the pastors. And, and you want to trust them in that. So good congregationalism, trust the pastors to, to do that detailed personal work and then acts appropriately when there's a recommendation from the pastors. Third confusion. The other thing that congregationalism is not, it is not rubber stamping by the congregation. So if getting overly involved in the details is one error, there is the possibility of the opposite error, of a congregation not being involved enough and aware enough. So we never want to turn congregationalism into um, sort of members being passive and without prayer and without spiritual discernment, just okaying everything that the pastors bring to the body. That's not healthy and that's not biblical either. So while you should trust your leaders, you should Acknowledge that as leaders, they may have more details and insight into a situation. You don't want to allow that to produce in you an uncaring, uninvolved spirit. Y'all tracking with me? So congregationalism is not one person, one vote individualism. It is not committee of the whole business meetings. And it is not rubber stamping without prayerful participation. In a healthy practice of congregational polity and governments, what we have is a form of church government where leaders or pastors lead according to the word of God and congregations as a whole have final decision-making authority in matters of membership, calling of leaders, uh, and protecting doctrine. Questions, comments, concerns? That's all clear, right? All right. So it don't matter, though, if we don't see it in the Bible. Question number three, where do we see this practice in the Bible? Well, uh, I want to take you to three, each of those topics, membership, calling leaders, and protecting doctrine. I want us to see in the biblical text examples and teaching uh, for each of those. So let's start with membership. It is a duty of the congregation to affirm the addition of members to the church and to remove members from the body of Christ. And so let's think about first the removal of a member because that's where it's clearest in the scripture. And we see this in matters of church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Look there with me. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. And Jesus is instructing his disciples on how they are to resolve personal disputes. There's a matter of personal sin. One Christian has sinned against another Christian, and it it, it sort of escalates to a membership issue. Look there with me in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault 
between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So there Jesus is just teaching the the personal ministry of reconciliation when, when we have offended each other. Verse 16, but what if that doesn't work? If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now he's involving other people in the congregation, two or three people who, uh, according to the law, he's just really teaching an application of the Old Testament law, two or three people who can be witnesses in the matter. Now, by witnesses, he doesn't merely mean two or three people who observe the thing happen. It means two or three people who actually will become co-accusers and judges in the matter. So take two or three people with you that everything might be established. Now, if he refuses, verse 17, to listen to them, notice, tell it to the church, the whole assembly. And if he refuses to even listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the, the last court of appeal, if you will, is the entire congregation. And if the person will not listen to the congregation, admit they're wrong, repent and be reconciled, then the congregation has a membership responsibility. That is to treat that person, that unrepentant sinner, as if they were a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, to treat them as if they were not Christians. To put them out of the membership of the church. A Gentile would have been in the New Testament, just another name for a a non-Jew, someone who's not in covenant with God. And tax collectors would have been uh, really socially despised as people who who were corrupt in character. So so he's using those as metaphors for or similes for treat them like they're not Christians, put them out of the membership of the church, and that responsibility falls to the congregation as a whole. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's another text on church discipline. The situation is different this time. This time, it's not a personal sin between two Christians. It's what uh, theologians have historically called uh, public scandalous sin. This is a sin now that is uh, known beyond the church, known beyond the two individuals, uh, and it's public and scandalous. Paul says this is something that not even unbelievers do. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verse 1, gives us the situation. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Paul's like, everybody know that's wrong. Right? And the problem is they are thinking themselves kind of tolerant and allowing it. Now notice, Paul now says they are to move pretty swiftly. Look there in verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, at your next church service, right? Don't, don't go to him one-on-one. Don't take two or three witnesses. Don't work through a long process that finally gets to the church. Everybody already know this. At your next church service. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And the you there is plural. The assembly there is referring to a meeting of the entire church. So it's the church as a whole who, to use Paul's language, delivers this man over to Satan. Now that's a powerful way of saying put him outside the safety and the fellowship of the church in the world which has been blinded by Satan 
and, and where the world system will, will buffet this person because of their sin. In other words, to remove the things that prevent the person from feeling the consequence of their sin, namely the fellowship and the affirmation of the local church. The goal now, notice at the end there, the goal there is restoration. That this man will learn not to sin uh, and be brought back to Christ. The goal is not for his punishment, but for his salvation in the day of the Lord. So the main thing I want to see here is that the decision to remove someone from membership is a decision made by the congregation, not merely by the elders or some other leader. Now, what about adding people to the membership? Well, in the same way, that decision falls to the congregation. Look with me in 2 Corinthians now, chapter 2. Some scholars believe 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is referring back to the situation that we just looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And if so, it appears that, that the discipline worked. That man has repented uh, and, and turned from his sin uh, and, and turned back to Christ. And Paul gives some instruction there in verses 6 to 8. Look with me there. He says, for such a one, the person has sinned, this punishment by the majority... Already we're into language of of voting and language of the whole assembly, aren't we? This punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Again, it seems he's, he's repented, he's sorrowful in a godly way, he's come back to the church for the church's affirmation, and, and maybe they have misunderstood. Maybe they have thought the point was to crush the man. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. He, he might be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. That was not the goal. His goal was repentance. He is repentant now. Now as a congregation, reaffirm your love for him, which I take to mean to bring him back into the fellowship of the church and in the full communion of the saints. So that addition of this person to the membership of the church is a congregational responsibility. In this way, the keys of the kingdom are held by the congregation together. And we've had the privilege in our short history of seeing this play out, haven't we? Seeing a brother taken into sin and to have the grievous responsibility of, of having to discipline him and to hand him over to Satan so that he might learn not to sin. And for a season, he continued in his sin and, and, and he took the beating that comes with sin. And in God's kindness and grace, he repented. Right? And, and, and began to renew and restore the things that had been broken, both in his own life and, and in relationships with, with others and with his church. And we had the, the great joy of having him come to a members meeting, not only to confess his sin, but to confess his repentance and for us to affirm our love for him, bring him back into the membership. That brother's going to be getting married in a couple of months to a wonderful godly sister. It was this work of the congregation, he would tell you, has told you, that was instrumental in snatching him back from sin and renewing his affection with Christ and his bride. This is a great privilege, hard, emotionally heart-rending sometimes, but it's a great privilege to obey Jesus in this and to show love in these membership matters as a congregation. So that's a responsibility. Number two, Responsibility of the congregation is to call its leaders. 
The congregation has final decision-making authority with regard to a person's call. We don't believe that somebody can just stand up one day and say, I feel called to ministry and just go out and renegade and, and, and start a church or just come in and say, hey, I'm, I, I'm a pastor. I, I'm, you know, I, I want to sort of preach here. No, bro, back row, <laughs> way back there. You got a whole lot to demonstrate before you stand up here, Right. And in part because, you know, another church may have ordained that person and called them to membership. But remember, we're congregational. That was that church's decision. Now as a congregation here, we might, we might respect that and we might rejoice at that and give some credence to that. But ultimately, we still got to go through the process of calling our own deacons and deaconesses and, and leaders here, right? That's, that's your responsibility, right? Where do we see this in the Bible? Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We considered this a little bit last week, but I just wish to make one note from Acts 6. In this scene where the deacons are appointed, there's a a problem in the church. Widows are getting their distribution differently, they think, uh, along cultural lines. Verse 2, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples, that's the whole church, and said to the whole church, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. It's a beautiful picture of congregationalism. There's a problem that arises, and the leaders take some responsibility for figuring out a way to address the problem. But then they put authority in the hands of the congregation to choose the, the deacons who would serve and to, and to sort of nominate them, if you will, to the, to the eldership. And the eldership, I presume here, examines them and the congregation calls them. We see that again in another text we looked at it last week, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. You can turn with me there. This time it's not deacons, but it's missionaries. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. And the great work of missions begins in Acts 13. Now, if you were at Bible study Thursday night, you know we had a wonderful conversation about this uh, at length. But notice now, the Holy Spirit calls these men to serve as missionaries. But it does it in such a way that it's the congregation that discerns and affirms that calling. And it's the congregation that lays hands on them and sends them out to do the work of missions. 
So it seems to me that from the book of Acts and uh, other places, that is, it, is, it is this dance going on where elders may recommend a solution, the congregation takes action to nominate or to call uh, a, a leader, and then the elders and the congregation lay hands on that person and commissions them to the task that the Spirit has called them to. Calling leaders, I want to suggest to you, is one of the most important responsibilities you have in a congregational system of government. Because your leaders will be the ones who care for you in the most important times of your spiritual life. You want faithful, godly people serving the church as deacons and pastors. And you want to be careful, prayerful, discerning members of the church in order to call and recognize such persons. Now, I want you to know that while this is a congregational responsibility, you can get this wrong. You can err here. Let me give you two historical examples, one a little bit more recent, one a bit more ancient history. Uh, some of you will know the name Henry Lyons. He was a pastor uh, of a Baptist church. He was the, the president of the National Baptist Convention for a number of years. Uh, and Mr. Lyons fell morally, uh, and Mr. Lyons was convicted of charges of financial fraud. Actually went to prison for a number of years. Mr. Lyons got out of prison, and almost the day he got out of prison, a congregation called him to serve. I want to suggest to you, they got that wrong. That man had disqualified himself in multiple ways. And, and however repentant and however humbled he might have been by the experience, and I pray that he was, that still didn't make him qualified to be a leader. Not in the church. He didn't have a good reputation with outsiders. Right? So that church had every right to call a pastor and every right to call him as a pastor, but they were wrong in doing so. Or take one of my historical heroes, Lemuel Haynes pastored in Rutland, Vermont for uh, a congregation there for about 30, 35 years. This is the late 1700s into up to about 1815 or so. So remarkable about this is Haynes was born an indentured servant, uh, was given his freedom when he showed um, uh, talent and gifting for ministry. Uh, and as an African-American, served an all-white congregation in Rutland, Vermont for 35 some odd years. At the end of that 35 years, that congregation fired Lemuel Haynes. He had been a faithful pastor by all accounts, had written books that were read on both sides of the Atlantic, defending the gospel against universalism, had been a faithful, outspoken advocate of the abolition of slavery, and had been a faithful preacher of the gospel. But it seems as best we can tell from some records uh, late in his ministry, some of the congregation got a little bit upset that he wouldn't admit the children of some of the, uh, the believing parents to the Lord's Supper and into communion because they weren't converted. And then the whispering started, the complaints, the, the sort of dissatisfaction with his advocacy beyond the pulpit. And so Haynes could say, hey, after 35 years, y'all just now figured out I was black? And they fired him. They didn't get it right. They had every right to make the decision, but they didn't make the right decision. So 
So I just want to press upon you as a congregation that your sort of most fundamental and important roles have to do with deciding who's in the membership and deciding who leads the membership. And so take that, that calling seriously. Pray, fast, discern that we might know who the Lord would lead us, have lead us. Number three, quickly, Congregation also has, role, has a responsibility for protecting the doctrine and, and protecting the gospel in particular. I see this uh, work itself out in Acts chapter 15. So just turn over a page there. Uh, and this is what we call the Jerusalem Council. We see the problem in verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this is clearly a gospel issue. They're adding circumcision to the gospel. And this created a stir, as you might imagine. Verse 2 says, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. In the Greek, that means they went off. They had no small dissension and debate with them. And notice what happens. A group on both sides were sent to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders about this issue in verse 2. Now notice who sent them and who received them. Verse 3 says, so being sent on their way by the church. And verse 4 says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Paul and Barnabas um, did not go on their own authority and did not resolve the matter only as leaders. Consider verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul. Verse 22 says, Did it seem good to the apostles and the elders, and notice, the whole church? And when the report was taken back to Antioch in verse 30, notice, they gathered the congregation together. From start to finish, the congregation was involved in resolving the doctrinal issue, the gospel issue. And beloved, that was even during the time of the apostles. One would have thought the apostles could have gone into a room by themselves and made a decision and given the rule. So if the whole church is involved to this extent, even during the era of the apostles, I think that responsibility is even more important since we don't have living apostles with us. We have the word. So we're to guard the doctrine. We'll see this in one other place. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 19, because one could say, oh, that's Acts 15. That's a unique kind of experience. Um, Not sure that applies in quite the same way today. Okay, look at Galatians chapter 1, where this church is turning away from Christ and the gospel and being tempted to turn back to the law and legalism. Paul writes, beginning in verse 6, these words. This is now addressed to the whole church. The apostle says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Now what's remarkable here is Paul doesn't address this letter to the pastors in Galatia. 
He addresses it to the churches in Galatia. So the you here is referring to the churches as a whole. And what's remarkable here is Paul says, look, I I preached the gospel to you. I brought the gospel to you now. You've received the gospel. Listen, even I must be judged by that gospel I preached to you. So the message is higher than the messenger. And the ones who are to discern whether or not any messenger has the message correct is the congregation, is the church, is the membership. And it's the church who would pronounce that anathema that let them be a curse if they preach any other gospel, even if it's an angel from heaven, let them be a curse. So the protection of the gospel is a congregational responsibility. I not only have responsibility to guard you from error and to guard you from false teaching, you have responsibility to guard you from false teaching and to guard you from error. Be careful who you listen to. Everybody who looks successful and is on TV or got a booming podcast or, or who sounds really good to you, you better test them by the gospel. You better make sure that what they say is thus saith the Lord and not just what pleases you, but what God has actually said. And we are in covenant together to do that very thing as a church, to protect this church from any other teaching except that that is given in the word of God, line upon line, precept upon precept. Now, this is why when we have our membership process along the way, one of the things we do is not just sort of take you through our classes, talking about our mission and so on, but we have pastoral interviews with people. It takes about 30 to 45 minutes, depending on how much you talk. And one question we always ask folks is, in 60 seconds or so, what is the gospel? Einstein said, if you can't explain a thing simply, you don't understand it well enough. We ought to be able to give that elevator speech with the gospel. That God's only son was sent by the father into the world, took upon himself human flesh. He did that to represent us before God. And he did that to provide in human flesh the righteousness that we owe to God. And he, and he took on flesh to die in our place on the cross where the father punished him for our sin. And he was buried for three days and he was raised from the grave and appeared to many witnesses and he ascended into heaven and sent the spirit and he's coming again to gather his church. If we have been saved by that message, we should be able to repeat that message. And being able to repeat that message helps us not only to spread that message, but also protect it. Because if somebody come up in here talking about Jesus didn't rise, let him be a curse to you. If somebody come in here talking about you've got to be circumcised, let him be a curse to you. Or you've got to do any other works of the law in order to save yourself, let him be a curse to you. If somebody comes in here saying Jesus was a prophet, but not the son of God, let him be a curse to you. But that's another gospel. And that other gospel is really no gospel. It dooms people to hell. The true gospel of Christ's crucifixion for our sins and his resurrection three days later and the promise of God to, that we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ, the true gospel brings us eternal life, forgiveness with God, righteousness in God's sight, and an everlasting life of abundance and joy and peace and love in the presence of God. 
And it's that message that makes us Christians, and it's that message that makes us a church, and it's that message that as members, you not only believe, but have a responsibility to protect. And if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian, it's that message that we want you to grasp and to believe that you might be rescued from God's coming judgment, and you might live eternally in God's everlasting love. So, as a church, we protect the gospel and the truth of the gospel. I said three things. Let me give you a four for free. There are prudential matters that the congregation should have a final rule in, right? These are not matters explicitly stated in the scripture. Questions, comments, concerns. Okay, and then finally, how do we walk this out? How does congregationalism work in practice? Especially the interaction between the pastors who are leading and the congregation who is deciding on matters of membership, doctrine, and leaders. You might, you might think of it this way. The pastors guide in the administration of these matters while the congregation executes it. So pastors have, for example, responsibility for examining potential elders and potential deacons for their spiritual qualification and call to the ministry. Then the pastors will nominate that person with enough time for the congregation to fast and pray and ask any questions that, that would help the body discern the will of God in this, in this matter of calling. And after that time of fasting and praying, then it's the congregation who has responsibility to finally act, to decide, to execute that call or not. See, the same kind of thing when it comes, as I said before, to examining potential members for membership or working with an issue that might lead to uh, excommunication, to discipline. The pastors have responsibility for examining that person's testimony or examining that person's spiritual life. And then coming to the congregation, having done that due diligence and making a recommendation to the congregation. And the congregation has a responsibility to, let's say it's a matter of, of discipline, we normally come and bring a recommendation. Normally, we'll allow that recommendation to sit for two months to the next members' meeting. And the congregation has a responsibility to pursue that person and to exhort that person and to call that person to repentance. And one of the things that's been really encouraging for me over the last couple of years is to see the number of you doing precisely that in these kinds of matters and the difference that it's made in people's lives. And then after that period, we come together for a vote. And the congregation decides whether to admit to membership or whether to act in church discipline. We see this, uh, that kind of dance going on on all these kinds of issues. Again, the salsa illustration. Under the kingly rule of Christ and his word, the pastors guide and lead the church in this dance. While the church agrees to the dance and responds by following those gestures and cues in matters of membership and calling leaders and protecting the gospel. Now, two last things to conclude. Number one, some of you have been very interested in this topic because you've had a suspicion that this might help allay points in times where you feel a little bit uncertain about this or that decision. I trust you see that this doesn't fix that problem for you, all right? So congregationalism does not take out 
all the ambiguity and the grayness and the questions. Congregationalism simply defines how we work together as a body to resolve the grayness. So there's a sense in which all of us, leaders and people, have to embrace the art of this. It's more art than science and have to be okay with the gray areas when they come up. Right? Um, it's not that our polity has failed us. It's just it wasn't designed to sort of get us to absolute certainty on every issue. We can never have that no matter our government. The second thing is um, there are horror stories about congregations destroying themselves, wounding their pastors, uh, ruining the witness of the church in the broader community. One of the things that's really clear is that for this to work, you need a regenerate church membership. Right? You need people with the mind of Christ. You need people filled with the Spirit of God. If, if this is sort of being practice in a carnal setting? Well, then that's how you get the horror stories. Whether it's a carnal so-called pastor who looks to lord it over the flock, or whether it's a carnal congregation that's fighting over the color of the carpet or where to place the organ. You know, we've all heard those stories. And you may be here, and you may be someone who's been put off by churches that didn't seem to have any real governance or where leaders were abusive and acted unilaterally or where you just would never go to a members meeting because the congregation would act a new kind of fool at those meetings. And you've perhaps been tempted to write off all churches because of that church. I just want to assure you, there's a better way to live together as God's people and it's the way the Bible describes for us in its pages. You don't have to give up on all churches because you've had a bad experience in one or two churches. You simply need to find a healthy church that lives by the book with humility and grace as the Spirit allows. Try a church that's at least trying to govern itself by the Bible and then stick with it. Pray for it. If you want, a, you want a better pastor, pray for the pastor you have. If, if pastor wants a better church, pray for the members we have. And in, in commitment and love, stick together and press through with the word and the grace that God gives. So, beloved, this is congregationalism. It's biblical. It's healthy. It's wise. It's sometimes hard. But it's good for God's church. We live this way, we'll grow together into Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for teaching us everything we need to know in your word. Your word is sufficient for life and godliness. It's not something that we need to follow Jesus that you fail to tell us in the Bible. Indeed, you have told us enough. And, and we pray that you give us grace to come to your word with our whole heart and our, our whole mind. And more than that, to come to the word in dependence upon your spirit. That we might have illumination and understanding. And we might have fervency and resolve to live according to what we find here. 
We thank you for the ways in which as a church we have lived out and attempted to live out what we've been considering this morning. We thank you for the ways in which we have failed and, and yet have grown through that difficulty. We thank you for the ways in which we have gotten some things right and we pray that you keep us humble and not puffed up, but recognize that if we've gotten anything right, it's again because of your spirit and your grace. And so, Lord, help us to be the body of Jesus, our head, and help us to walk together, O oh Lord, uh, in him with peace, joy, hope, and love, and every other virtue of the kingdom. We pray this for ourselves, and we pray this for all your churches. In Jesus' name, amen.